0: This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. As every schoolgirl and boy knows, it was nearly 80 years ago that one person, Winston Churchill, stood between Western civilization, as we know it, and a barbarous fascist tyranny that had already engulfed most of Western Europe. By early June of 1940, British troops were fleeing from Dunkirk across the English Channel, hoping the army could be saved from German bombs, tanks, and artillery. Facing imminent invasion, Churchill rallied his countrymen and the members of the House of Commons with rhetoric that still sends chills down the spine. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Well, he had a better accent than I did, but that was what he said. And all of Churchill's life pointed toward this moment of destiny, says Andrew Roberts in his gripping, best-selling, masterful one-volume biography entitled Churchill Walking with Destiny. But does every schoolgirl and boy really know this story? Or have young people on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean lost all knowledge of even the greatest moments in the history of Western civilization? To discuss this topic, as well as his book, I have Andrew Roberts, author of the biography of Winston Churchill, with me on the Education Exchange today. Thank you, Andrew, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you very much
1: indeed, Paul. It's an honor to be on the show.
0: Andrew, before we get into uh, the history in our schools and that topic, which I really do want to get to, I must first ask you why you gave this book its title, Churchill Walking with Destiny.
1: Well, it wasn't the reason that uh, some of my friends suggested, which was that all um, Americans are interested in destiny and all Englishmen are interested in walking. It was, in (laughs) fact, um, a quotation from uh, Churchill from the last paragraph of the first volume of Winston Churchill's war memoirs, The Gathering Storm, in which he was writing about the moment that the king made him prime minister, which happened totally coincidentally on exactly the same day that Adolf Hitler unleashed Blitzkrieg on the West, invading Belgium and Holland and Luxembourg, shortly afterwards also, of course, to invade France. And he wrote about that day the 10th of May 1940, I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. And it struck me as being an incredibly um, acute piece of self-analysis because of course, indeed, all of the jobs he'd held, all of the speeches he'd made, all of the books that he'd written and the articles he'd written were all really coming together to prepare him for uh, for the hour and the trial of May
0: 1940. Well, can you give me just a couple of, of examples that's, that's absolutely well, fascinating?
1: Um, he'd been first Lord of the Admiralty in both the First World War and the Second World War. So he'd been the man who made the Grand Fleet ready for the First World War, and had also um, fought for the first nine months in charge of the Royal Navy in the Second World War. So that was a great preparation for the whole um, maritime part of the war when he was Prime Minister. He'd also given several thousand speeches in his life up until then. He was a great uh, orator, of course, a great speechifier. And those amazing phrases, morale-boosting phrases, such as the one that you just read out just now from his great speech of the 4th of June, 1940, uh, very much were the result of a lifetime of uh, coming up with uh, really outstanding
0: and remarkable phrases like that. Well, uh, let's pause at that point and just Because one of the things you should be taught in school, and are not being taught in school these days, is the art of public speaking, the art of rhetoric. Um, Now, where did Churchill learn the principles of public speaking, and what were his principles of public speaking?
1: he um, he learned them really at school uh, which is which is a good place to start although his father was chancellor of the exchequer and used to invite him to uh, watch some debates in the house of commons so he he watched his father uh, debating against william gladstone for example on the same side as benjamin disraeli and so he he heard many of the greatest orators of the 19th century uh, including his own father and, um, and then at school, he was required to learn huge amounts of poetry. There was one day that he recited um, completely accurately 1,200 lines of Macaulay's Lays of Ancient Rome. And so you have, therefore, somebody who also had a phonographic memory, which is a bit like a photographic memory, but it was a memory for phrases and, and sounds. And so he was able to remember, uh, it was part of the strength of his his. his comedic uh, his his comic humor as well he was such a funny man because he could remember jokes that were told in the music hall some half a century earlier
0: well so but he did have some principles too didn't he have yes. some certain things that he said this oh, is makes for absolutely. the way you should present your ideas
1: amazingly at the age um, in 1897 he wrote down a book in in a, in an article called the scaffolding of rhetoric the five things that you need to do if you're going to be a, a great public speaker. And the amazing thing was he was only 23 at the time and he'd never given a public speech in his life. <laughs> so he, usually, of course, people practice and then create a theory from the practice. Whereas with him, he actually had the theory first and then uh, put it into practice.
0: Oh, well, can we educate our listeners? Can yes, we tell a couple, them? To, well, um, yeah? One of the things that you
1: should do if you're making a public speech according to Churchill was to keep your sentences short. Don't um, include lots of um, subclauses clauses uh, because each sentence should convey one thought and one thought only. Another one was to keep your word short. Uh, don't show off how clever you are by using some long word. Use
0: the exact right word for the sentence. Um, And use some old-fashioned Anglo-Saxon words, not those things from the southern part of Europe.
1: um, Not so much old-fashioned, but the words that the English-speaking peoples have used in their common parlance for a thousand years. Uh, Sometimes he did use deliberately old-fashioned words. The word foe, for example, for for meaning uh, an enemy, um, had not really been in common parlance since, since Victorian England. It is now, though. Uh, Isn't it? he I think he brought it back. Um yes, it's a um it's one of those words that had almost become obsolescent but then which he he used for the striking um power of an unusual word. Um he was very much in favor of um otherwise as I say of using words from old English and uh, and Anglo-Saxon because he felt that people could automatically uh, uh understand them and know what he was talking about.
0: Well, so I have to ask you this question. Why did you write still another biography of Winston Churchill, about whom there are already? I think you said the other day 1,009 books on this subject, uh, including a number of very excellent studies written by yourself. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, but yes, 1,009 biographies. It does strike me as somewhat, and my wife tells me, it is undoubtedly something quite hubristic to impose a 1,010th on the public. But um, very fortunately, and over the last six or seven, eight years, there has been an avalanche of new information about Churchill, new sources that have become available. And uh, Her Majesty the Queen allowed me to be the first Churchill biographer to use her father's diaries and to research them. And... Uh, King George the 6th met Churchill every Tuesday of the second world war and they had uh, lunch together and um the king wrote down everything that Churchill told him and Churchill trusted the king with all the great secrets of the second world war and so um so that's a new Uh, a very exciting new source, but there have been many others, 41 sets of papers that have been deposited at Churchill College, Cambridge, since the uh, last major
0: biography of him. Well, so did you, what would you say are the new points that have emerged from some of these new sources that you've been able to explore, including Well, there's something, the there's King's something new
1: yeah. on pretty much every page of this book um, that hasn't appeared in a Churchill biography before. I think one of the most striking things was the way in which, and you get this from the King's Diaries, the sheer sense of frustration that Churchill had with the very slow speed with which the Roosevelt administration um, brought America towards bellicosity in the Second World War. He obviously understood intellectually how difficult it was to do for um, for Roosevelt because he was fighting against the isolationist movement and Charles Lindbergh and so on. But nonetheless, uh, Churchill did think that this war was a Manichean struggle between good and evil, uh, between uh, civilization and democracy on one side and the most evil regime to besmirch human history on the other, and so he very much um, thought that the greatest democracy in the world, which was America at that time, should um, should be getting more involved earlier. But he couldn't say so, of course, in the, in Parliament or to the press or to the public, let alone to the Americans. And so he let out this frustration, really, to, uh, to the king.
0: Well, that is truly fascinating, and it's very closely related to the question that I wanted to bring up, because, uh, Andrew, I... I I have always thought that uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, especially after he was elected in the fall of 1940, had now uh, was liberated to do what was best for the world and did not have to worry about reelection. I mean, he was not probably ever going to run for president again, as it turns out, he does. But he couldn't have planned that in 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 19. Uh, at, December 1940. But it's not until December 1941, after Japan has attacked Pearl Harbor, that he finally does uh, respond to the Germans' declaration of war (laughs) against the United States and really throw the whole weight of the United States into the battlefield. So what was going on that whole year? Can you... Well, it wasn't, it
1: wasn't a completely wasted year, of course. The United States was um, rearming um, very, uh, very powerfully, um, and it was helping the United Kingdom as well. The Lend-Lease Act was passed in the spring of 1941 and was absolutely invaluable in allowing Britain to buy the weapons it needed to fight the Germans on uh, what's called in England the Never-Never, which means that we actually didn't wind up paying... Um, the The last bit of uh, payment um, for lend lease didn't happen until two thousand and six so we were we were borrowing really for seven on seventy five year terms um from the United States uh, to buy the united states own uh, weapons so um it's, it's wrong to say, and also actually, in fact, the way in which the American Navy started taking more and more of the um, Atlantic, patrolling more and more of the Atlantic against German U-boats was invaluable, really, for the Royal Navy. So um, although it was, uh, of course, Hitler who declared war on America, uh, nonetheless, um, the Roosevelt administration was certainly not doing nothing.
0: Yes. Well, I I think that's uh, absolutely correct. Uh, FDR did uh, a lot. Uh, it still I still wonder. Uh, well, you had a you had um the two acts
1: of Congress which prevented him from doing anything more. Uh, he wasn't able to give
0: um, to give uh, weapons to Britain for example. Uh, we had to had to pay for everything. So, yeah, and it, you know, it does say in the US Constitution that Congress shall declare war, but presidents have since then found many ways around that uh, particular constitutional provision, and probably FDR might have done. But now I want to ask you an even tougher question. How many research assistants help you write this book? (laughs) Uh, None. I don't believe in... um
1: in farming out uh, work on my books to anybody else for the simple reason it's not because of uh, some kind of, you know, pride or showing off it's just terror really I'm always very worried that um, one of them will be lazy and will copy something off Wikipedia which I'll then uh, copy down thinking it was their work and uh, and be accused of plagiarism which obviously is a very serious um, Thing for any historian.
0: Well, it certainly has made your work authoritative in its little details and uh, elegant throughout. So, wise choice, I would have to say. That's wise choice. Thank you. So, um, now, Andrew uh, Churchill was a marvelous historian in his own right, and in his speeches, he refers to great moments in British history, Marlborough's struggles against the French. uh, the triumph over Napoleon, um, and then you mention in passing that every educated young person understood what he was talking about because they had all read uh, this material in school. And you sort of say, in those days they had all read it, which implies that that's no longer true. So let me, what, what is the truth about the knowledge of history among young people in Britain today? Um, well, it's utterly woeful. Uh, it's one of the great
1: tragedies of my country is that we have such a wonderful history, extraordinary history. Uh, the long panoply of of british history is um, is a great uh, aspect of my country. But um, overall, I'm afraid, um, the the most exciting parts of it, the wars and battles and assassinations and so on, um, are not taught. And the, uh, the really boring bits are, <laughs> oh. and we got to the terrible situation where uh, in a recent survey some 20% of uh, British teenagers, and it wasn't a small sample either, it was a couple of thousand, 20% of them thought that Winston Churchill was a fictional character. Uh, even though 47% thought that Sherlock Holmes was a real person and um, 53% thought that Eleanor Rigby was a real person. Well, maybe they don't know the difference between fiction and fact. Well, that's, um, that's a big problem,
0: isn't it? Because uh, uh, that's
1: job number one of the history teachers.
0: Yeah, well, we do get all these documentaries that uh, get uh, fictionalized, and then uh, we, and then we have movies that pretend that they're do- documentaries when they're they're really not. There was one um, uh, terrible statistic that I saw the other day, and this is
1: I don't think this is true of today, but certainly a few years ago, um, the amount of time that was spent in the school syllabus, the school history syllabus, uh, on Winston Churchill had been cut down to fourteen seconds. He appears for, uh, in a video that uh, children had to watch, and he was on the video for 14 seconds, and that was all they were required to know about Winston Churchill.
0: Well, you know, George Washington is falling out of the uh, history books in the United States. Uh, it's it, Much more attention is being given to uh, the s- slavery than to the writing of the Constitution, and not that it, slavery isn't a terribly important topic to be explored, but um the, the the negative sides of american history seem to be the point of many of the uh pages that uh, students are being asked to read as as a young person and the celebratory moments the the moments that rise to the top such as uh, Abraham Lincoln's uh Gettysburg address and uh the uh, what Washington did with the troops and the declaration all of those things get passed over very quickly so I mean, this is a problem that we face in the United States just as well as in Britain. What is, what's the explanation for this, do you think? I, I
1: am flummoxed by it uh, constantly. It, um, it seems to be uh, the quickest way that one can demoralize a nation is to not tell uh, its children of the greatness uh, and the great moments. And, of course, there were very um, sad and unfortunate moments. Uh, slavery that you mentioned. Of course, uh, it took um, Britain until 1807 to uh, to ban the slave trade, and then 1833 to abolish slavery, which is very, very late um, in history. But um, nonetheless, the uh, the positive aspects, the fact that the Royal Navy was instrumental in wiping out the slave trade, which continued um, many after many more decades, of course. Um, was, uh, is something to be proud of. And, uh, and you, in your country, the giants of the founders um, of, uh, of Adams and Jefferson and uh, Franklin and Monroe and Madison, uh, these people, uh, many of them slave owners, were um, nonetheless, as well as being slave owners, were the people who created the most enlightened document in the history of the Enlightenment in the American Constitution. Um, I, as an Englishman, might take a few might take offence at a few phrases in the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> <laughs> There's a few words about Under King George. Yeah, there. That's right, That, that, exactly. that you may g- not completely um, <laughs> find
0: your, the fondest bedtime reading. Well,
1: precisely, and the idea that he was a tyrant when actually we were being um, taxed about one quarter of what you were in the colonies <laughs> um, might uh, might uh, raise a few eyebrows. But nonetheless, when it came to uh, he was tremendously unfortunate, really to. Live in the same decade as those men that who, who I just mentioned, um, who were genuine giants.
0: Yes, it is. Uh, it is remarkable, actually, that the revolution didn't go off the rails too. I mean, they kept it. They kept it. Within. When one looks
1: at the way that the French Revolution went and the Russian Revolution as well, the idea that these these um, Bostonian merchants and uh, and Virginian. Uh, planters uh, were able to keep control of that revolution. Um, was
0: um, was not the least of its attributes. Well, is the problem with history in our schools more? Um, well, is it a, the fundamental issue is within the uh, history departments at our universities their understanding of history their, uh, their uh, historiography, that or maybe that's all they now teach is historiography and not history.
1: I think also um, the way in which the narrative um, has been lost as well. Uh, I think it's very important to teach chronology, to teach dates in fact, you know, what happened in each year because when you- Did you, you th-
0: actually learn in school uh, the dates for every we had uh, uh, between, monarch between
1: 1066 and um, and 1945. We were expected to know 500 dates, and we were tested on them at the every at the end of every term, and um, and many of us would get 498. Um, right you know it was uh, it was it was, the question was was whether you're going to get one or two wrong um, and it's proved for me at least completely invaluable throughout my life because if you know that something happens in a decade before something else happened that is the way that you can get the chronology get the narrative work out who was who and where was what you know unless you do that if you just do things thematically uh, you can't you can't work those things out easily in your in your head.
0: Well, now we're being asked. Uh, we're asking students to explain the causes of the American Revolution or the or the Civil War, and people don't even really know what came before the Civil War and what came after the Civil War.
1: Yes, exactly. And unless you do. Um, it's it's no good, and in England we have the same problem. What we it's it's nicknamed by teachers uh, Henry to Hitler, so you're taught about Henry VIII and the Tudors, and then you jump to the Second World War, and we don't have the uh, the the interspersing um, of the. Uh, of the Stuarts and the
0: Hanoverians, you know, to put everything in perspective, <laughs> which uh, did contribute something to uh, British history. And of
1: course, well, absolutely, the, um, the the growth of the British Empire, really, uh, the second British Empire, took place under the late um, Hanoverians, and so we uh, you, you miss an awful lot, yes.
0: Well, so and, uh, and, and
1: having mentioned, sorry, just about yeah? in having mentioned the British Empire, that is also um, taught in the most um, outrageously politically correct way, as though the whole of the empire, the whole 500 years of the of the story of the empire, from John Cabot landing in Newfoundland in 1497 through to um, Christopher Patton leaving Hong Kong in 1997, 500 years of it, almost to the day, and it's treated as a universally bad thing, which clearly it wasn't. Um, there, in fact, some would argue um, that actually it was the greatest thing that the British... Um, ever gave to civilization. And the way in which, therefore, the sort of fashionably politically correct um, stances are taken by uh, teachers both in schools and at university, I think does children absolutely no favors whatsoever.
0: Well, we have the same thing in, in the United States where we have uh, the, the march of, of the... Uh Colonies and the United States uh, across the Appalachians and in in, across the Mississippi and all the way to the Pacific Coast and uh, of course uh, a lot of um, suffering occurs in there and the uh, Native Americans uh, are um, disrupt their lives are disrupted and they're forced to move west and this is a very unfortunate part of the American experience but. the the positive sides of manifest destiny are 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 generally not uh, discussed it's the, no, the, and the, also
1: I, actually funny enough i gave a, a minute I'm a chairman of a military book uh, prize, and we gave the prize uh, a couple of years ago to a, to a tremendously good book which pointed out how much internecine struggle there was between the Native American tribes. And One of the reasons that they weren't able to put up more um, of a fight against, the, uh, against the, the white man was because they had been attacking each other and, um, and deprecating each other's territories for decades. And uh, so it's a much more nuanced, much more interesting, in fact, uh, and much more complicated story than the um, than the sheer sort of um, racially-based one that we're taught today.
0: Well, we don't want to be over-celebratory about the American experience or the British experience. We want to tell the whole story. We want to recognize the, 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 uh, uh, the, the bad things or the uh, unfortunate things, uh, or the bad side of human nature. Um, the selfish na- uh, side of human nature, but we shouldn't forget uh, some of the uh, ways in which, at various times, great leaders have emerged out of uh, out of this uh, and, and led to a better future.
1: That's certainly right, and and I, in my biography of um, Winston Churchill, certainly don't shy away from the fact that he made mistake after mistake, blunder after blunder. He got women's suffrage wrong. He got the Uh, abdication crisis wrong, the gold standard, the black and tans, the Gallipoli uh, expedition, you know, mistake after mistake. But overall, when one places his um, life and career in its uh, proper historical context, and you look at the three great threats made to Western civilization in the 20th century, from Prussian militarism, and from the Nazis, and then from Soviet Communism, you recognize that he was the first person to warn against all three of them, and sometimes the only person to warn against all three of them, and therefore you have to put his mistakes into the context of his overall brilliance. And uh, he himself said to his wife, Clementine, from the trenches, where after he'd had been forced to resign over one of his mistakes, I should have made nothing if I had not made
0: mistakes. Well, so uh, this is a biography. Biographies are not necessarily in fashion in the academy. Uh, This is thought to be hero worship, and it's hard not to have a little hero worship when you start reading about Churchill. Even if you just read your single volume, you tend to think, you know, this is a hero. But then a friend of mine just said to me the other day, well, you know, it wasn't Churchill that saved Britain from the Nazis. It was the Royal Air Force.
1: Yes, but who was the person who said that the Royal Air Force should be the size and strength that it was all the way na- through the 1930s? When Chancellor of the Exchequer, after Chancellor of the Exchequer was cutting the Royal Air Force, it was Winston Churchill. So you <laughs> can't uh, you can't um, really uh, separate the two. It strikes me who was it also that didn't that ordered the Royal Air Force not to continue the Battle of France where it could have been swallowed up by the Germans, um, but instead kept. Uh, kept it back to fight the Battle of Britain six weeks later. Again, Winston Churchill.
0: Churchill uh, was a a historian himself, so what would he think of the instruction in history in England and the United States today? What would be his reaction (laughs) to our times? Well,
1: I think uh, actually in 1953, he, uh, at the time of the coronation, an American, young American student uh, uh, came up to him and, and started talking to him and, uh, and Churchill said to him, study history, study history, for therein lies all the secrets of statecraft. And so I think that that would be what he'd be saying today. He would be saying that studying history is just as important now as ever it was during his own lifetime. Um, and uh, and therein lie all the secrets of statecraft.
0: So we are now being told that civic education requires that you participate in local elections uh, as a student and you get involved in campaigns for issues you believe in. And that's what your civic education should be in school. Uh is that a proper replacement for the study of history?
1: No, um, not a replacement. I don't think there's anything wrong with people um, standing for <laughs> elective office and being uh, and undertaking civic um, uh, duties and responsibilities, and neither would Churchill. Churchill, of course, went into parliament extremely young. He was still in his mid-twenties uh, when he did that. But um, But it has to be, I think history has to be the ultimate grounding of, um, of anyone who seeks to um, to make decisions on behalf of others.
0: Well, thank you very much for joining me on the Education Exchange, uh, Andrew. Uh, I have been speaking with Andrew Roberts, author of a best-selling book, Churchill, Walking with Destiny. I urge you to run over to your local bookstore, which you will find it there, and, and purchase it immediately. So thank you for joining me today, uh, Andrew.
1: Thank you very much indeed, Paul. I've hugely enjoyed it.
0: I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time. Thank you for joining me.